0: Welcome to the All Things Nintendo Podcast. I'm Brian Shea from Game Informer, and this is a weekly podcast to discuss all the biggest news and games from the world of Nintendo. If you live in the U.S., I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. As you might expect, we are recording this episode before usual because normally I record on Thursdays, Thursday was Thanksgiving, you get the point. So this episode is going to be spent looking back at one of the greatest and most important video games of all time because this week, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time turned 25 years old. Joining me for this episode
1: is my friend and yours, Kyle Hilliard from Game Informer. How's it going, Kyle? Hey, I, uh, yeah, I, this game, I, not to like just jump right into it, but I, 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 has a permanent spot as my favorite game of all time. I think we've talked about it a few times how mm-hmm. nothing will ever unseat it, not because I don't think there will be better games, but because it was so important to me growing up and how I feel about video games in general. I wouldn't be in a field where I'm writing about video games as a job if it weren't for Ocarina of Time. It's, it's my favorite game, period.
0: It is uh, perpetual. I thought, again, if I thought it was going to be in my permanent number one spot as well, then Breath of the Wild came along. But yeah, safe to say, it holds very high. We we, we both hold this game in extremely high regard. So this should be a fun episode to record with you. Yeah. I immediately thought of you when I was like, oh, Ocarina of Time 25. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Before we Let's go make into Kyle that, I feel though, old. I know. We're, we are extremely ancient. <laughs> um, before we get into that, though, There were, this is an extremely historic week for Nintendo. These are two other anniversaries we probably could do entire episodes on, but because they're this week, I do want to touch on them very briefly. Uh, This day, 10 years ago, I guess this day that we're recording, which is the 22nd, we had two other big games release on the same day. 10 years ago, Super Mario 3D World and The Legend of Zelda A Link Between Worlds both hit.
1: Oh, my God. That that makes me feel even older. I know. Because I was working at Game Informer. I remember when those games came into the <laughs> office. That's which, you know, it's different if it's like, oh, I feel old. I played Ocarina of Time when I was a kid. And I was like, no, I was like a professional. <laughs> like,
0: <laughs> Where do you rank The Legend of Zelda Link Between Worlds? I mean, this is a Zelda-themed episode, but I did right. want to mention Mario 3D World as well. I love Mario 3D World, by the way. I think it's an underrated yeah. 3D Mario game. Uh, but where do you rank a link between worlds in like overall Zelda? Is it top five?
1: Maybe a little bit lower than that. Gosh. That it's tough to just sort of consider that, but probably top ten, I think. Okay. Maybe not top five. Um but yeah, link between worlds, fantastic. I uh it needs to come it needs a and needs a switch port, honestly. It needs a like
0: switch, that. or I guess at this point, maybe just a switch two port, whatever that ends yeah. up being. Let me see where we ranked it. Uh on our ranking every zelda
1: because i'm trying to think yeah it would be like ocarina majora breath of the wild tears of the kingdom minish cap i think all superseded but i controversially would probably put it above link to the past personally
0: i Uh, also would i think link to the past is obviously much more important yeah yeah but a link between worlds really did perfect that formula it's i think the only zelda game i've ever 100 percented oh really
1: oh yeah, I mean, like, that, yeah, that, because that actually had a hard mode. And a, a rarity for me is I beat it and started it over immediately. So I don't, good. I, you don't usually play games back to back like that, but, um, I did, uh, for Link Between Worlds. Yeah.
0: So in our Zelda ranking, our official gameinformer.com Zelda ranking, a Link Between Worlds is number five
1: wow that's that's really high over but not... such entries
0: as majora's mask wind waker yeah, twilight mistake. princess minish cap skyward sword links awakening remake and original
1: yeah, so i would yeah i would knock i would knock wind waker down a couple pegs i think uh, you mean
0: like higher up on the list oh or no lower i'm lower sorry
1: up? yeah no when w- i believe it belongs above wind waker i don't believe it belongs above minish cap and twilight princess but uh Anyway, yeah, I mean, that's all. Who cares? List or <laughs> list. Uh, but what a but fantastic game, Link Between Worlds is.
0: Both those games, Super Mario 3D World and a Link Between Worlds. I still remember going to a store and buying both of them together and being like, this is going to be a fun. I-, I think they've released, Nintendo used to release games on Sundays, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah. And now they're Fridays, but uh, it used to be Sundays. I remember being like, this is going to be a fun week, like having both of these games to play.
1: I remember, uh, So back in the day at the Game Informer offices, I don't know if this was still going on when when you were there, Brian, but uh, Nintendo was really concerned about, uh, like, privacy. And so we literally had a desk that had a 3DS chained to it uh, that occasionally you would have to review games on that thing. And I remember Dan Reichert reviewing A Link Between Worlds, like, quite literally chained to a desk yeah. like i think he had to he because he was such a big zelda fan he actually like came in on the weekend to keep playing just because you had to play it at that desk in the God. office. I, I had to play a few games like that, but thankfully they, they got away from that. So,
0: Well, yeah. I mean, Reiner used to tell stories about how they would actually send a representative out with like a personalized like N64. Right. Where like he, you would have to sit there in the room with a person because they were so like concerned you were going to like, I don't know, take it and sell it on the black market or whatever. Yeah,
1: I think that's how Reiner reviewed ocarina of time was in I think so in an office with the nintendo representative sitting there just you know twiddling his thumbs for 20 30 hours however long that game is you know what a weird job that and must have been
0: cell phones didn't exist back then so you couldn't just be like scrolling twitter
1: yeah yeah <laughs> right yeah oh, uh, but weird. that's a
0: good segue kyle because that's what this episode is all about and before we jump into kind of like the development history and like our opinions on ocarina of time before ocarina of time what was your experience with zelda
1: I mean, not much. That that's why that's why it is like permanently me, permanently in my number one spot. Frankly, because it was my first Zelda. Like I was mm-hmm. familiar with Zelda. I knew the character. I think I had seen the NES game. I had seen the Super Nintendo game. It just was like one. You know how in that when you were young, I don't. It's probably different for kids these days. Um, I mean, I know it is because I I have one. But like, there was a time where like your access to video games was based on what your parents bought you and maybe what your friends had. Oh and that, yeah. That they could let you borrow or you could play at their house. And for whatever reason, within my group of friends, I didn't have anyone that owned a copy of link to the past. I don't, you know, it, which seems weird in retrospect, but I, I didn't know anyone that had it. And then I, my Ocarina of time experiences is a little strange because, uh, I visited a friend who had a huge collection of N64 games and, and we were kind of playing through a bunch of them. And I was like, oh, I've heard of Zelda. What What is this? Like, what, I've heard it's really good. Why is this so popular? And he's like, oh, let's check it out. And what he did actually was he played the final Ganondorf boss fight for me. Oh, my God. Like, he showed me the fight <laughs> against Ganondorf, like the final fight. So that was technically my first sort of insight into the game. And I was like, oh, this looks really cool. This is really interesting. And then I, you know, I, I got a copy myself for like the following holiday and spent like a like a month on it or something and it was just like it was amazing and it was funny because like it was all building toward that boss fight that i had seen i didn't really feel like it had been spoiled i had a different sort of perception of how i felt about spoilers back then but yeah my ocarina time experience was seeing the ending and then going back and playing actually playing it myself a few months later and just like just Affecting me for the rest of my life, I'm forever seeking that experience again with video games. (laughs) So I, I guess I had a
0: similar experience, even though like one of the very first video games I ever played was the original Legend of Zelda. Like before I owned a console, I went to like my cousin's house and played the Legend of Zelda there, and being like, oh, this is really cool. Like this, this is a good video game. And then like I never played Zelda two as a kid, and I never played Link's Awakening as a kid, but I remember renting a link to the past when i might we briefly moved to florida when i was in second grade and playing a link to the past from like a rental store hmm. and loving it but never really making significant progress because you know it was a rental and i never ended up owning a copy as a kid and then going to a another cousin's house like when i moved back to maryland and he had the n64 and he i, I you know i had an n64 at that time and i had like mario 64 and like san francisco rush 2049 and uh mario kart yeah you know the essentials (laughs) yeah and i remember all all i remember is he had ocarina of time and mario 64 those are the two games he had and he was like i was like oh i know mario 64 i've beaten that game what's this game and he was like oh it's the new legend of zelda game like what this is this doesn't look anything like a link to the past or the original legend of zelda that i've played and i remember he was just running around kakariko village and he was like going into houses and like I was like, "What? You can do this? like this? This looks yeah. unreal."
1: I mean, it was and, really one of my first experiences of NPCs that wouldn't attack you. Like, yeah, honestly, I was like, where I was like "Those aren't enemies." <laughs> yeah, it was weird.
0: <laughs> so yeah, that was kind of my experience, and I was like, "Oh, this is this looks really cool. I should check this out." And then I ended up buying a copy at some point. I think I went to like a Toys R Us and bought it, and obviously obsessed over it. And I remember I I got. I had trouble with the water temple and I had to have like my cousin who had beaten the game already, the one that showed it to me in the first place, like come over and help me with it. Cause I was, I think he was like two years older than me. So it was, uh, it it was easier for him and plus he'd already done it, but yeah. So let's jump into the development history here of this game. Uh, development started around the same time as the development of Mario 64 and Mario Kart 64, and as you may recall, Mario 64 came out in 96, Mario Kart 64 came out in late 96 in Japan and early 97 in the U.S. So there was some you can you can kind of get a sense for how long the development cycle is there. And uh, I believe uh, it was two and a half years was the overall development time of Ocarina of Time. I, I have the notes there later on. Um And, you know, as is the case with a lot of these retrospectives, and you've been on a few of these, Kyle, I'll be referring to a few different Iwata Asks interviews because those are just gold mines of information. (laughs) For people who aren't familiar with that, uh, the late Nintendo president, Satoru Iwata, used to sit down with these developers and just have, like, these casual conversations that ended up getting into, like, the most nitty-gritty details you could ever imagine. He did, for for the release of Ocarina of Time 3D, he did a series, one with like half of the original developers of Ocarina of Time, one with the other half of the original developers of Ocarina of Time, another one with just the developers on Ocarina of Time 3D with AGL Numa in all three of those. And then one final one, which was just a one-on-one discussion with Shigeru Miyamoto. So it's like, I spent my entire day yesterday reading through like, 30 pages of just transcribed dialogue between Satoru Iwata and all these developers from like Nintendo in the nineties. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. Yeah. i
1: I read those quite a while ago. It's, it's been a while though.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of really interesting information there. So this came out uh out of this interview, like before development on Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time, Yoshiaki Koizumi, who, you know, has gone on to have a legendary career similar to that of someone like A.G. Aonuma. Um, He was experimenting alongside Shigeru Miyamoto with remaking Zelda 2 using Hmm. polygonal graphics on the Super Nintendo. Like, I'm assuming, like, they were like, hey, like, Donkey Kong Country looks kind of cool on this thing. (laughs) Like, what if we did this? Like, obviously, they didn't say that directly, but, like, they wanted to use the polygon graphics similar to what Donkey Kong Country had on the Super Nintendo. Weird, And they had issues making kind of like the sword fighting element that they really wanted to install in the next Zelda game. They were like, Oh, we want to make a a Zelda game that is like based on Shanbara, which is like Japanese uh, sport of sword fighting. Hmm. And they couldn't make it work with this polygonal graphic style. So they shelved the project and also the idea of like a sword fighting Zelda game until the next console came around. So uh, Toru, Toru Osawa, who was one of five directors on Ocarina of Time, he said that uh, you know he he also liked that idea of like sword fighting, and he wrote a script with that idea in mind. And then uh, Miyamoto and Koizumi found out about this script, and they are like, oh, well, that's a perfect fit for what we were trying to do on the Super Famicom. And so they kind of all started working together, and Koizumi was actually the one that was working closest with Shigeru Miyamoto during this time on both Super Mario 64 and Ocarina of Time, And he said that the element that they struggled the most with was the combat element of Mario 64 because the axes just wouldn't line up properly at times. So Mario's attacks... It is hard
1: to jump on a Goomba's head in 3D. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So they said, like, jumping on a Goomba, like, attacking a Goomba that's standing, like, right in front of you. Sometimes they'd just whiff. And, like, he, he mentioned, like, how, like, he would walk towards a sign and try to read it. And sometimes he would just, like, accidentally, like, run around in circles on it. So they were, like we have to figure out a way to like make this work if we do another 3d action game. And they said that they were so concerned about it that they actually considered toning down the action elements of Ocarina of time in favor of adding more puzzles because they worried that they would, it wouldn't feel as good if like, you know, cause Mario, there's a lot of platforming elements. Zelda doesn't have as many platforming elements. It was, it's more focused on an action and combat. So they're like, well, maybe we need to fix that in order to make this 3d.
1: Yeah.
0: So, Koizumi said that like the Mario 64 development just went by so fast and like cuz they really wanted it to come out the or the start of the N64 life cycle but there was like stuff that he couldn't do and couldn't like fit into the game so he ended up taking a ton of notes for stuff that he couldn't add to Mario 64 so they could save them for the next Zelda game and uh two of those was being able to take on multiple enemies at the same time and another was the idea of riding a horse yeah, <laughs> so those I mean- were like that he really wanted to fit into mario 64 but ended up not being able to
1: i mean zelda and mario have always like been sort of being developed side by side in a weird way you know like like they're this they're a, a lot of the same ideas sort of branch off in different directions like I, I zelda was originally called like mario adventure like that's like some of the uh, like i like the the paper sort of templates they had for the first zelda were like well this is like a different version of mario so it's interesting that that's still maintained even through the n64 era of like these two games being developed side by side and and which ideas go into which game is an is an important factor you know
0: yeah and, uh, you know, obviously Miyamoto heavily involved in both. And then the early phases, uh, Takashi Tezuka, who worked hand in hand with Miyamoto all the way up through a link to the past on the Zelda franchise, uh, before he kind of just became like Mr. Mario. <laughs> um, so Mr. Mario. he, Takashi Tezuka from what I understand had very little involvement with Ocarina of time. He had kind of transitioned fully into overseeing the Mario franchise at this point, which is why they pretty much brought in Eiji Numa but, um, mm-hmm. Miyamoto was the producer of this, and he kind of oversaw the five directors of Ocarina of Time. And originally, Miyamoto was concerned that the N64 would not be able to handle the realization of what we got with Ocarina of Time. And he actually was like, well, that format of Mario 64 worked pretty well. What if we did that with Zelda, where we just had Ganon's Castle as the hub world, and you access different worlds through Ganon's Castle? Kind of like Peach's Castle in Mario 64. Yeah, yeah. And he's even said like the worst case scenario would have been Link is not able to go outside. He's just inside the entire game, which is <laughs> completely different than what we actually got. And <clears throat> Miyamoto actually said that Ocarina of Time was originally developed using the same engine as Mario 64. Uh, he said this in a Nintendo Power interview back in 1998 that I was reading. I, I did a lot of reading for this
1: episode. <laughs> um, oh, nice.
0: And I uh, found a Nintendo Power interview from 1998, right before, like like a month before Ocarina of Time came out. And he, they were like, hey, like, would you ever want to use the Zelda engine for anything else? And he was like, well, it's actually the Mario 64 engine, but we had to modify it so much that I consider it a completely different engine at this point. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> it's like they started out with very similar concepts, but just kept evolving. And they're like, okay, yeah, this is something completely different. So... Uh, Miyamoto wanted to make the action work as a sword fighting game. Um, and so he originally was like, well, the only way we can do that to make it like feel good in 3d is to make it a first person game. And he was like, well, you're not going to be able to see link. And then when the action starts, like you're exploring in first person. And then once the action starts, it would transition to a 2d perspective, kind of like Zelda 2 and then you would see the battle play out from a side view and he mm. told Koizumi this who was one of the directors and also he designed Link's character model and Koizumi knew that like it would be really hard and he also like admitted he's like selfishly I wanted to keep Link in view the whole time because I created the character model and he's like well if you're uh, if you're making it first person you're never going to see the character model that I created which I thought was really cool yeah. and he just said that like he was like even though it was not very nice toward Miyamoto. I didn't even try to do a first-person scene. I just kind of ignored what he wanted, (laughs) which is very funny to be like, oh yeah, Shigeru Miyamoto told me to do this for a Zelda game that he was overseeing, and I was like, nah, I'm just not going to do it.
1: I'm on it. And then just, you know.
0: You You got it, boss. Um, And so to make this element work, like the sword fighting element without having to be like, all right, well, this weird transition between like first person and side perspective, uh, Koizumi and his team created Z-targeting where you could lock onto enemies to defend, dodge, and attack. And, uh, you know, that was in response to that problem they had with Mario 64 where they would kind of just have a difficult time lining up things at times. And crucial,
1: crucial to 3D games in general. Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's maybe the... The most influential element of Ocarina of Time and the most enduring element at this point, like 25 years later. So they just couldn't figure it out for Mario 64 and they couldn't figure it out for Ocarina of Time either. So during development, they were like, we've got to figure out a way to make this action work. So they went to Toei Kyoto Studio Park early on in development which the way they described it kind of sounds like universal studios where it's like a a big film studio where they shoot movies and everything. But there's like an area, like a a theme park that's open to the public. You can get tours of like the area and they'll have like shows and everything you can attend. And they said that they were walking around this theme park and it was a really hot day. So they ducked into like a playhouse where like a, a show was happening. And they were like, all right, let's, let's go inside and cool off. And there was a ninja show going on and it featured one samurai fighting off like a bunch of different enemies and one of the sequences had him fighting a ninja. And the ninja kind of like had like a, uh, uh, one of those like chains with like a, a blade on the end of it. Mm-hmm. And he threw that at the, uh, the samurai. And the samurai caught it around his forearm and like kind of wrapped it around his forearm to trap the ninja. And the ninja held onto it and went around him in a circle, holding onto the chain, like kind of being tethered by the chain. And they, uh, they, they used that as kind of like, oh, well, like, what if we use like that as kind of like a way to, to make it so like you can stay locked onto an enemy because as the ninja rotated around him, he rotated with him because they were on, like they were kind of tethered through that chain.
1: Right. That's funny.
0: This play also helped dictate the pacing of battles because they had like one sequence where like this one hero was in the middle and he was fighting off 20 enemies at the same time. And they were like, well, nobody would ever be able to do that in real life. And what they realized is like in movies and, and like stage productions, they have the enemies kind of come at them in like this certain pacing where they like one after another, where it's like, all right, you defeat this one. Then the next one comes in immediately. And they said, this actually directly influenced the Stalfos fight in the forest temple where like you kind of take on two at the same time. Cause like, you'll notice that whenever you're fighting multiple enemies at once, it's usually like, all right, you're, you're really focused on one. And then like the others are kind of just hanging in the back waiting for you.
1: Yeah. 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 It's that thing that that doesn't make sense in real life, but like is, Fun to play and fun to watch. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah you don't <laughs> actually want to fight like two people at once if you can. Yeah, because they'll
0: just jump on you at the same time. Like, yeah, if they're smart, yeah. They'll be like, hey, one, two, three, get them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so the Z targeting system originally used an upside down triangle to mark who you're targeting. And Koizumi, being the designer that he is, didn't like that. So he wanted something more thematic. So he came up with the idea of having a fairy be that marker. And he said, uh, normally the team would design like a cute girl character to be the fairy, but because it was like a really small character, they couldn't pull off that level of detail on the N64. So they just made like a ball of light with wings sticking out. And the name Navi came from a term Koizumi used to describe the fairy, which was fairy navigation system. And Osawa said, well, we should call it Navi for short. And they liked that because, like in the Zelda series, there's a lot of like kind of names that are are meaningful for other other things like they're short yeah. or that they, they they allude to other things they're like oh it's thematic so let's do that so
1: the most famous being link to link the player to the to to link you know correct or
0: uh as we'll get into it later epina or epona or however oh, you I pronounce that it. one uh so uh we talked about z targeting do you think it is the most influential
1: part of ocarina of time Pro- probably honestly because like I mean, that game's important in a dozen, a million ways, but I think that's the one that's, like, it instantly was picked up by other sort of developers and, like, continues to show up in games even today is, like, that mechanic of being able to lock onto a character in a 3D space. Excuse me. I'd be hard-pressed to think of of something else that was more uh, ubiquitous at this mm-hmm. point. I mean, I feel like every 3D action game
0: third third person 3d action game today still uses a variation on it
1: right yeah like, maybe you're not holding down a button to lock onto a character you necessarily click a stick or something but, or even or it just kind of does it for you automatically you know yeah uh, yeah that that's probably it yeah i would think so it's so wild but This was the first time the Zelda series
0: went to 3D, which is, it's like Mario 64, where it's like, how did they get it so right on their first try? Like, they're really wizards over at Nintendo, I swear. Um, But Miyamoto said that this transition to 3D was actually really eye-opening for how different the gameplay feels. And here's a quote from him about, like, kind of his learnings on this first time making a Zelda game in 3D. He said, quote, when you change something from 2D to 3D, though, you discover a lot of things... Like certain things become no fun anymore. For example, cutting grass was something that first appeared in the Legend of Zelda series with the Legend of Zelda linked to the past. When we when we made it, it was surprisingly fun. Some people started talking about how this was a video game that you could cut grass using a spin attack. But then we wanted to bring that element of cutting grass into the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. It was like we were under orders to do so. Just it was <laughs> just when we we're saying that simply remaking that old topic in a prettier way wasn't particularly impressive. We started talking about how it was weird that you could cut the grass, but you couldn't cut the signs. So it was like, all right, well, now we've remade this 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 action in three d. Now it's like, okay, well, why can you do this and this, but you can't cut signs because like you know it, it, they the the kind of the ante gets upped. So uh, (laughs) Miyamoto talked about working with uh, Kazuaki Morita, who was a programmer and made it work so you could cut signs. And they're like, well, the N64 can't render it so that you can cut exactly in the direction that the sword goes or exactly in the way that the sword lands. So they ended up making six predetermined cut styles based on like where the sword hits and they just make it so that it would r- roughly reflected the direction link would strike it. And the broken signs would also float in water because they thought it was weird. If like the broken signs would just like either bounce off the water or sink in the water. Cause it was wood. Yeah.
1: Um, that was I mean, it a felt, it, it felt accurate. It did feel like you were cutting it as though, you know, like revengeance style where you could mm-hmm. actually like slice things, even if it was like, they were fooling you a little bit, but I mean, that's all video game development is.
0: Right? Yeah. Video it's game, like, video game magic is thinking, a very so real though, thing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So even though Ocarina of Time is like, I think the game that most people associate with like the rise of A.G. Aonuma as the figurehead of the franchise, he actually joined the project later than the other directors. So he said that when he joined, the script was mostly done and the developers were starting to turn out content. And uh, what Aonuma did with Ocarina of Time is he drew some of the storyboards, which he said pretty much everybody was doing. Like it was just Mm -hmm. whoever was available would draw the storyboards back in that day. Uh, he designed six of the dungeons, most of them being early and mid-stage dungeons. And he designed most of the enemies, a lot of the enemy encounters, and most of the boss battles. So not an insignificant uh, contribution from A.G. Numa there.
1: Yeah, no, not at all.
0: Um, and here's another really, really key defining element of Ocarina of Time. That is the link, or the link, the jump between the two time periods. And... Uh, I didn't know this, but that wasn't always the case. It was not always the case that you were going to be jumping between the two time periods. So Osawa said that originally it was just adult Link. And according to Miyamoto, Koizumi's wife actually asked Koizumi why Nintendo didn't have any handsome characters. So Koizumi (laughs) tried to make adult Link look cool and handsome. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
1: So they gave him white tights. Yeah, I mean, hey, it's all the rage. he Man, he—I mean—that was a standout thing to me, at least. Like seeing him for the first time, he was like, "That's like the coolest looking Nintendo character ever." I mean, you know, let's get rid of the the chubby plumber. Like, well, who's this guy? You know.
0: <laughs> so, uh, also, the reason that they had a li- an adult character was that they thought that, like, with the sword fighting element being so prominent, they were worried that a shorter character with a smaller sword might have trouble having, like, being able to reach larger enemies. Hmm. And then uh, this all changed when Miyamoto said, like, oh, you know, adult Link looks really cool. We should not lose him. But I'd like to really see a cute child version of this Link. (laughs) And (laughs) So, like, because, like, the way Miyamoto put it was, like, you know, to this point, like, Link was always a child. Aside from Zelda 2, which was the only time he was like, yeah, that's an adult version or teenage version of Link. At least a teenager. I think he said Link is supposed to be 16 in Zelda 2. But okay. like, he's like 12 in the original Zelda or something like that. And like other other Zeldas, he's usually pretty young. So he was like, yeah, I want to see a child version of this. Cause that's like this, that's the link everybody knows, but like, I don't want to lose adult link too, because he looks really cool. And they're like, Miyamoto said it. So I guess we got to do it. So they, this was about a year and a half before release. So about a year into development and they had to change the script so substantially to include the jump between time and, what they thought that, that they could do to keep both these characters was they came up with the idea of traveling between time periods with a seven-year gap between them. And uh, actually, two and a half one years. One of the coolest
1: I, ideas ever in it video It really games. is. It really is such a cool <laughs> idea.
0: Um, but two and a half years was actually the longest development period for a Zelda game to that point. And that includes a one-year delay from Christmas 97 to Holiday 98 which oh, uh, they okay. thought was pretty substantial but uh all the developers were actually very excited about that delay and uh, Iwata was like really you guys were excited for that they're like yeah everything w- needed to be like perfect and we were not going to get it to where we needed it to be if it was uh if we had to get it out christmas 97 yeah yeah so uh <clears throat> according to Al Numa that like the this change of like adding the time period jump actually they were like <laughs> he used the word like Iwata So Aonuma said something like, yeah, change that substantial could have led to like a total collapse of development. And Iwata was like, "Uh, did it? And they were like, no, but it did lead to some pretty heated exchanges.
1: And uh, that's how
0: Aonuma put it. And Osawa said that he would make changes to the script to like make it so that it would like try to fit that tone of like going between time periods. And people would like immediately poke holes in it, be like, oh, that change is weird or that's impossible to happen. And then uh, Koizumi said that the character model for young Link was actually the biggest challenge because not only did he have to make a character that looked similar, but like also like younger without just being like a smaller version of the same character model. But he also had to redo about half of adult Link's animation so they would work with young Link. So he he was like, yeah, I ended up having to like animate 1.5 versions of Link, as he put it. And yeah, then, just, uh, yeah,
1: because they couldn't just one to one. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So Miyamoto, he was talking to in that same Nintendo Power interview I referenced earlier in 1998. He said, We really wanted to describe Link's development of abilities as he grows from a child to an adult. So we used motion capture technology. Boy, what a concept. <laughs> and, uh, quote, we thought game players would want to play as an adult Link, even though in the previous games, with the exception of Zelda 2 Adventure Link, Link was always a child. For those who are accustomed to the earlier games, we accommodated them with the inclusion of young Link. The concept of young and old Link matched other Zelda games since they usually had some sort of parallel world for Link to travel between. The parallel world in this case just happens to be a time shift going back and forth between times. I thought that worked well with the overall theme of the Zelda games. And uh, to pull this off, originally, they thought they would need more space. So the development was actually originally planned for the N64 DD, the Nintendo 64 disk drive expansion. Yeah, which was just a doomed peripheral that Nintendo wanted to put out for the N64 that let you play CD games on N64 and uh, due to it taking longer because, you know, like if you ever played a game on cartridge or if you, you know, even playing a modern game on a PS5 or Xbox Series X you know that like load times off of a CD are substantial compared to like a cartridge or a game on your hard drive, uh, especially an SSD hard drive. So because the cartridge didn't have any moving parts, but like an optical disc reader does, and the disc itself is moving all the time, it takes longer to retrieve the items from memory. And the game ended up running really poorly. Link didn't move properly koizumi got really frustrated with the disc version of it he was like i can't even move link right like he's like what do you want me to do here like link doesn't run yeah. when i want him to run so they canceled the development of the dd version and moved it to a standard n64 cartridge that was double the memory size of a normal n64 cartridge and oh, okay. uh that that let them load things in, instantly
1: and like it is a heavier know. cartridge honestly like if you I, if you hold it compared to other cartridges it's, it's heavier yeah It's uh, I mean, it was,
0: it was a huge cartridge. I think it was like
1: 32 megabytes
0: at the time, which is massive back in the day. Yeah. Uh, But after, here's an interesting thing that like, I mean, it's pretty well known, but after the completion of Ocarina of Time, Nintendo did continue developing it and they made a special version of Ocarina of Time for the N64 DD called Mm -hmm. Ura Zelda, U-R-A Zelda, which rearranged all the dungeons. So they were like basically new dungeons but the N64 DD was only in production in Japan for two years. And it never made it over to the U S because it was so like poorly selling that they were like, yeah, let's just cut bait, which is rare for Nintendo. Like usually Nintendo is like, no, we're, we're sticking with this. We're going to make it happen. And, uh, they, they did not for the N64 DD. And they eventually released that rearranged version, uh, as Ocarina of time master quest on GameCube, which I think was a a pre-order bonus for, uh, or I guess you could get it as a subscription bonus for Nintendo Power originally, uh, right? If
1: you pre-ordered Wind Waker, you got it as well, which is like the craziest and m- best pre-order incentive ever, frankly. It very well maybe. I think uh, So I think
0: there were two. There was the the Zelda Collection and Zelda Collector's Edition,
1: right? Yeah, one came with the Zelda GameCube, and it had Majora's Mask on it. But And then this pre-order one for Wind Waker just had the two versions of Ocarina of Time on it, which I... I played Master Quest. I never finished it. I've always meant to to make time for it because the, the 3DS remake has it At as it. well. You have to beat the game first to access it. And I, that's another instance where like I started it, but I never finished the Master Quest version.
0: Yeah, I m- never started it actually.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, just I mean, like the, the main thing is so well. right. The dungeons are just sort of rearranged to be a yeah. little more difficult and different, which, um, yeah, I, I... I, I, I would like to play it. I, they, it seems like they'll put it on. They should probably, maybe they'd find a way to put it on switch at some point. I at, think it is part I think of the N64 collection.
0: I'm pretty sure that it's there. Oh, I think that there? if you go into the switch online expansion pack, because they'll release like alternate versions of games. Like yeah, here's a version of smash brothers with all the characters unlocked or whatever. Here's yeah. like a, a Mario world save file, basically that has like a hundred percent. So you can play like the, the weirdo or the bizarro world or whatever it's called. Um, but so speaking of like having a thing with more space, Nintendo Power in that interview asked Miyamoto if they considered using the N64 expansion pack, which was in development at the time for Ocarina of Time. And he said, quote, it would have been more convenient to have used the memory expansion pack for Zelda, but it wasn't ready. Ocarina of Time was originally designed for the N64 disk drive in mind. And in the future, we'd like to make use of some of those unrealized ideas intended for the N64 disk drive. So I'm wondering, because Majora's Mask, as many people know, was released with the expansion pack. I'm wondering how many yeah. of the ideas of Majora's Mask were actually going to be used for the uh, for Ocarina of Time if they had more memory. Because, yeah. he, like you okay. said, some of those unrealized ideas intended for the N64DD. So... And like yeah. as you know, also Ocarina of Time came out, and AG Numa immediately started to work on Majora's Mask and did it in less like a year, right? Like that was the it's development insane. cycle.
1: It's it, it's crazy how fast yeah. they did Majora's Mask. It's so
0: weird. that is a funny little uh, thing that I when I interviewed AGL Numa back in 2019 at E3, I was like. So are you going to give yourself more time for this sequel to Breath of the Wild than you did to the sequel of Ocarina of Time? And he's like, yeah, I learned my lesson.
1: He looked in the <laughs> eyes and he said, I'm going to give myself more time than I have for any <laughs> Zelda game, sequel or otherwise, that has ever come out. And he was right. He made he, he made good on that.
0: He did. Uh, so horse riding, Kyle. It's another one of those elements that was introduced in Ocarina of Time. And here were the weird unexpected tidbits that i learned from reading about horse riding uh miyamoto really likes country music it turns out
1: yeah banjo player
0: and also he likes westerns like he grew up on tv uh western tv like uh like westerns like country westerns Mm -hmm. and uh that's why he wanted an emphasis on horseback riding in zelda and koizumi came up with the name Ipona because it is the celtic god of horses and fertility oh okay uh, and Miyamoto really wanted the two elements he really wanted to include were mounted archery and one-on-one combat on horseback, but they could only achieve the mounted archery part of that. One of those
1: didn't make it. Yeah. Yes, but
0: <laughs> mounted mounted combat was an idea that Miyamoto wanted to stick with. So they eventually were able to include it in Twilight Princess.
1: That's right. Yeah, that was, and, that, uh, that was part of the reveal was Link swinging his sword on on horseback. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's I mean, that's one of the key elements of that game. Yeah. And Alnuma said that Miyamoto also wanted Link to be able to raise his sword over his head, but the N64 wouldn't let him. So they kept that idea in their back pocket until they were able to implement it in Skyward Sword.
1: What a weird specific thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs>
1: uh, I mean it looks like, cool.
0: Yeah, the Wii Motion Plus allows us to finally pull that off. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I also reading into like what Miyamoto was into back then, it turns out he also really loves Twin Peaks.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah that's, a, that's a big Nintendo recurring... That's all of Japan, I think. They just love Twin Peaks, man. And uh, he said that inspired the kinds of characters they wanted to put into the game.
0: He said that the show was less about the ins and outs of the story and more about the characters and their relationships, so he wanted to capture that in Ocarina of Time. Meanwhile, Takashi Tezuka has said the same thing about Link's Awakening. He, Twin Peaks was a huge inspiration for that as well. And, uh, you know, it was interesting because, like, in talking to it, it's it's fitting because when i interviewed agl numa in 2019 he i asked him like i thought to me there was a, a direct comparison mm-hmm. between the parallel worlds of a link or a link to the past and the parallel worlds of uh, ocarina of time and i was like okay so there must have been like a lot of inspiration that you had from link to the past to ocarina of time and he's like nope, it was all link's awakening it was like my biggest influence when right, developing yeah. of time like it uh, was a
1: surprising anecdote yeah
0: yeah so it, it is interesting that those were both heavily inspired by twin peaks as well so it, it kind of makes sense in that way so also in case you're curious i made note of some of miyamoto's favorite directors as of this 1998 interview he like loved, film directors yeah oh so steven spielberg he specifically mentions loving raiders of the lost ark okay yeah, uh, yeah. alfred hitchcock tim Good burton
1: yeah. and
0: john waters
1: John waters
0: yeah <laughs> all right the oddball of that group yeah um, I
1: mean not not that like that's he's a great filmmaker but like it is it's not what you'd think someone who is like making ostensibly children's toys would be inspired by <laughs> I would love to get because like Nintendo doesn't really talk about like outside inspiration
0: as much anymore
1: yeah not much yeah
0: like I remember uh Reiner I think it was a uh, it was at e3 2017 or 20 2016 he was telling me that like he was asking like in about Breath of the Wilds uh, before it came out. Like, what was your inspiration for this? And he was like, Oh, you know, like we we talk to a lot of people. A lot of people are fans of anime, and he's just like, Well, what anime are like you you guys fans of? And he's like, Oh, you know, we just like a lot of anime.
1: Like they just didn't want to name specific things. <laughs> he just didn't want to say Princess Mononoke for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> and like but... you know,
0: when I asked like Takashi Tezuka a couple months ago, like, oh well, how do you feel about Mario and Sonic coming out at like the same week? And he's like, oh, we like we want people to enjoy 2D platformers, whether that's Mario or something else <laughs> or something else. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, they don't really like talking yeah. about other franchises that they don't own these days. Um, so it's, it's interesting to have him be like, yeah, Steven Spielberg, Raiders of the Lost Ark rules. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. So another element that was introduced in this game was auto jump. And right. yeah. uh, Miyamoto thought of this during one of his days off, apparently. And the team thought that he was crazy because he was like, we're the team that created Mario. And you want us to like take away the jump button.
1: (laughs) So there was a jump button at one point, right?
0: Well, they, they, I mean, I, they thought about it, but I don't think they ever like officially implemented it. Yeah. And Miyamoto really liked the auto jump idea because it could allow the computer to determine the kind of jump that link would do based on the land that was in front of him, which is why, like if he jumps off a high ledge into water, like over a waterfall, he goes into a diving animation yeah. and also it would allow him to, it, when he lands, he poses in the right way. It's not just like, all right, you have to be ready for whatever action he's going to do next. It's like, no, the, the it, it's automatically processing where he's going to jump and like how he's going to land based on the terrain that's in front of him.
1: I mean, that, that was another one of those things that, especially like after growing up with platformers and, N 64 sort of st- making a name for itself with like Mario. It's like this is a cool place where you jump in 3D. The first time I fully grasped that Link doesn't jump on command necessarily, that he will jump on his own like over like gaps and stuff. I was like, "Oh, weird. Like it just felt yeah. wrong to me, but like obviously it like makes sense as long as once you spend enough time with it." Yeah. And uh so
0: looking at the dungeons themselves, apparently they kept running into problems because koizumi and his team they like created like the hook shot and then they'd show it to aonuma and then who out who was working on the dungeons and then realized that they would need to rework parts of the dungeons because like it would be a problem if you had the hook shot in this dungeon and if you already went into like this dungeon and you already had that item it'd be like okay you can skip over parts of it now or like if you had the bow and arrow in another dungeon you'd have to skip up so they had to like come back and forth a lot and Koizumi like apologized to Aonuma during the the Wada asks and Aonuma was like, no, oh, no, it's all good. And then, uh, and <laughs> he good. said, Aonuma said, quote, but on the other hand, if you decide the items you're going to put in from the start, it doesn't mean everything will go well. I don't think such a variety of distinctive items would have come about that way. We were making something unprecedented so we couldn't see what would be right to make, what, what would be right to make or where the goal should be. So it's like, yeah, like it had to be kind of chaotic in order for it to turn out the way that it did, because there was, uh, you know, there was there was no way they, they had no blueprint at that point. They were making the blueprint. So it's like, yeah, OK, we ha- we have the hook shot. All right. How's that going to work? Wh- like, will that break anything in the future? Like, to yeah. like, will you be able to skip over? So that's like I can't even imagine like breaking your brain in that way like <laughs> having to be like oh god there's wood in this dungeon you could just shoot over and like skip this entire puzzle like that that's uh that's something i never even thought of like yeah. the, the challenges of making a game like this
1: like give it yeah which is like then you know breath of the wild tears the kingdom they're basically <laughs> we're like yeah, yeah do whatever you
0: want <laughs> well i mean i asked al numa about that uh let me see if i can bring up the quote here um about like how do you feel about people like finding out
1: like ways to break your game? Um, yeah. I mean, they were, he, I remember, I mean, you'll look up the exact quote, but I mean, they're very pro at this point. Yeah. Right? They're like, they're like, yeah, I mean, this is where we're making a playground for you to, to play in. And, and uh, we don't really mind it. Like the point is that you're sort of going around the, the back of things and figuring out how to do stuff on your own in an interesting way. So here, actually here are two
0: back-to-back quotes from A.G. Numa that are pertinent to this conversation. So in in the context of Tears of the Kingdom, I, I said, I know I completed several puzzles and scenarios in the game where I thought, was that the right way to do it or did I cheat that? And what goes through your mind when you see somebody successfully complete a problem in a way you never thought of? And he said, when I quote, when you think about people cheating is fun. And then he laughs. Said they like it. Finding a shortcut (laughs) is enjoyable. People will look for an easy way to do something if they can avoid struggling. We want to make sure that that is something that stayed in the game. When thinking about games of the past that we've worked on, where there was a puzzle to solve and only one answer, that's the kind of, that's kind of the past way of developing games. Now I'm happy that we've arrived at this method of giving people a lot of options. And there are many answers to a single problem and all of them could be potentially correct. I feel happy we've arrived at this type of development style. So that's uh, that, that's interesting how they've evolved. And then uh, I said, on that note, I think a lot of people shared the viewpoint that Ocarina of Time was kind of a starting point for one era of Zelda games, laying the foundation for several titles that came after it. Do you see Breath of the Wild as establishing the new blueprint for the foundation of the next several Zelda games for years to come? And his quote was, with Ocarina of Time, I think it's correct to say that it did kind of create a format for a number of Zelda titles in the franchise that came after it. But in some ways, that was a little bit restricting for us. While we always aim to give the player freedom of certain kinds, there were certain things that format didn't really afford in giving people freedom. Of course, the series continued to evolve after Ocarina of Time, but I think it's also fair to say that now we've arrived at Breath of the Wild and the new type of more open play and freedom that it affords. Yeah, I think it's correct to say that it has created a new kind of format for the series to proceed from.
1: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's cool.
0: So yeah, that, that was from my interview earlier this year with A.G. Aonuma and uh uh Fujibayashi, who's the director of Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom.
1: But, but I hope uh, I hope they don't abandon, you know, the old the old ways, so to speak. You know, I think they can both coexist, hopefully. I think
0: so too. I I, I mean, I would also love to see a new 2D Zelda game or a top down yeah. Zelda game. Oh yeah. Um, but coming off of the uh that that problem where they kept like moving the the un- items around. Uh, Takumi Kawagoe, who was a programmer, also ran into some problems as a result of people moving around in that way. Because the team kept coming to him and being like, "Hey, we need to move this item from this dungeon to another dungeon because we found something wrong." And he just kept like having difficulty because he'd be programming <laughs> that item to work specifically for that dungeon and be like, "All right, I guess I'll just start over again." <laughs> so they really—it seemed like they had like kind of like problems with like one hand not talking to the other. Uh, yeah. In a lot of different ways, but it just turns out there were five different hands because there were five different directors. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, they were. Yeah. It's, I mean, I can't even imagine sort of moving from that old style of Zelda into 3D Zelda. I mean, it would just been a nightmare to sort of upend the tea table, you know.
0: The famous Miyamoto quote, or exactly. I guess
1: the, the Miyamoto move. I, who
0: was it that said the up end of the tea I table? I
1: think it was Miyamoto. Yeah, I was talking. About, yeah, I don't remember exactly what the context was, but I know it's a Miyamoto thing, right?
0: Yeah, where he just comes in and is like, nope, let's change everything, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, first impression when you turn on the game, Kyle, it's a good one. Absolutely beautiful cutscene with Link riding Epona. Oh, and I love that, that still
1: am- gives me chills, man. That, that amazing that Koji Kondo. Coming in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, we're going to cut to that right now.
1: what an opening wow. scene, right? And, uh... <laughs> uh, we didn't see it, uh, but you saw it. So, or so Kawagoe
0: actually was the one that shot that scene and he had to scour Hyrule field to find a place that they could shoot that scene. And he was like, you know, I, it was hard because <laughs> there was just like, we don't know how we weren't pre-rendering cutscenes. It was actually like gameplay footage. So like we had to find yeah. like a spot that would have like the, like the right hill composition and everything. And while, when he finally found the right spot, the moon slid into view 100% by chance. And he was like, all right, that's it. That's the spot. We're <laughs> going to do that it. again. We're going to, we're going to have that recreate. Cause you know, I had the day night cycle.
1: Yeah. No, that's perfect. Yeah.
0: Um, but Miyamoto felt really good about the product when it released, as you might imagine. And here's his quote from, uh, i think this is from the iwata asks that he did and he said quote in terms of having done new things with this game i felt a very strong feeling that i had only feel on a certain number of games that i'm involved in and i was really happy that we were here in japan we here in japan could make a medieval tale of sword and sorcery liked by people all over the world despite using a historical drama at Toei kyoto studio park as reference it was well received overseas
1: i like that that's like his big takeaway from ocarina of time is like yeah it was well received overseas
0: (laughs) well i mean i think at that time it was like yeah we're we're this team in japan and people like on the other side of the planet liked it that's crazy like it's like oh yeah that's like a lot of games now (laughs) um but i found an old article from 1998 is like two weeks before ocarina of time came out uh from in the chicago tribune talking about how advanced ocarina of time is and it was jason rich of the chicago tribune on november 12th 1998 and it's kind of served as half interview half review of the game and here's a quote from the chicago tribune said quote supported by a development staff of more than 200 and a budget in excess of 12 million dollars legend of zelda ocarina of time retailed 70 dollars, easily can (laughs) be considered one of the most advanced games ever the 3d adventure represents Nintendo's most ambitious development effort. One paralleling the production of a motion picture.
1: I know they loved that comparison back then to the the movie industry. It's funny that it was a $70 game. It's crazy.
0: Uh, Same thing with tears of the kingdom. I know (laughs) 25 years later.
1: (laughs) I just forget sometimes that it's like that, that $60 price point is kind of recent, you know, like, uh, yeah, I don't know.
0: Well, it's like they went up, and
1: then when CDs first
0: introduced, because like N sixty four and SNES games, they could be expensive. Like there were some expensive cartridge yeah. games back in the nineties. Well, I like
1: I see people will share old like toy Toys R Us catalogs and stuff, and you'll see like Super Nintendo games, and they're priced at like seventy nine and and ninety dollars and stuff, and it's like how weird. I didn't I, I didn't know I wasn't buying the games. I now understand why they were such a limited commodity, yeah. you know.
0: <laughs> so in that same article at Chicago Tribune. Miyamoto said that his formula for success for this game and his overall philosophy, I guess, at the time, I don't know if it's still true because this is, again, 25 years ago, Mm -hmm. said 70% of the game should have to do with the objectives, while the remaining 30% should be about exploring and uncovering secrets. Something tells me that with something like Tears of the Kingdom and Breath of the Wild, that that ratio has shifted a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And here's an interesting tidbit that I got from the Nintendo Power interview from earlier. Uh, In 1998, here's how Shigeru Miyamoto laid out the Zelda timeline. He said, Ocarina of Time is the first story, then the original Legend of Zelda, then Zelda 2, the adventure of Link, and finally a link to the past. It's not very clear where Link's Awakening fits in. It could be any time after Ocarina
1: of Time. So, oh, that, so when was that interview from?
0: 1998.
1: Really? I didn't think they ever talked about it up on, uh, before then. That's right. So funny. That was, oh, that was my thought as
0: well. And then that's one – if you look at that, those actually are – in one of the timelines that's in the uh, hero defeated timeline yeah but it's slightly out of order from the official timeline that we know now because in that timeline it goes ocarina of time to a link to the past then several games that weren't yet released like a link between worlds and a few of like the the handheld games then zelda one and then finally zelda two so they bumped a link to the past earlier in the timeline in the official timeline
1: yeah yeah oh weird oh interesting that's a good that was an interesting
0: tidbit that i found in that that nintendo power interview uh that by the way that nintendo power interview had a lot of conversations about like oh what are you doing with like a mario 64 2 and he's like oh you know i've had a prototype of like mario and luigi running around on my desk for like a couple years now we just haven't had time to develop it but we're working on it
1: yeah i've heard those rumors yeah
0: Asking about like, oh, what about this like all star fighting game you guys are coming up with? What's that about? And he's like, oh yeah, it's probably going to be called like Nintendo All Star Super Smash or something like that. (laughs) And then he's like, yeah, it's going to have like he's just sort of like naming like it's going to have like you know Mario and Samus from Metroid and
1: yeah, we're going to make these uh, crazy reveal trailers for new characters that are going to be more popular (laughs) than the game itself. It's going to be wild.
0: He's like, oh yeah, like Captain Falcon from F Zero is going to be in it. And it's like imagine reading that in 1998 and be like.
1: <laughs> yeah right yeah So i
0: guess f-zero was a lot bigger then than it is now
1: yeah i don't kind know of. maybe
0: <laughs> so uh we're we're the game's finally out now ocarina of time came out november 23rd 1998 and uh if you're listening to this podcast you probably know it was a massive success for both fans and critics it has a 99 on metacritic making it the highest scoring game in metacritic history yeah. game informer not a part of that. Give it a nine point seven five out of ten. Andrew Ryan.
1: Who gives a Zelda nine seven five?
0: Same score as Tears of the Kingdom, reviewed by uh-huh. Kyle
1: Hilliard. <laughs> uh, but it won Game
0: Informer's Game of the Year in 1998. It was also Zerp. the second best-selling game of 1998 in the U.S. behind Pokemon Red, Blue, Green, Yellow. Uh, obviously green not a part of oh, that that's in-
1: cheating that's three games
0: <laughs> it is. Uh, but it also broke the record at the time for most pre-orders in video game history right yeah. and it ended up selling uh, this is nothing compared to like modern standards 7.6 million copies
1: i mean th- on that's still that's a lot by modern standards i would modern say, standards honestly. for
0: a zelda game i don't think so like I mean yeah, that isn't that so. less than like Tears of the or uh, yeah, Tears of the Kingdom sold in like its first two days.
1: Oh, this is over this is overall? Yeah, this is overall. Oh. Like oh, lifetime N sixty four sales. Yeah, I mean yeah, Tears of the Kingdom. If they announced seven million on day one, you'd think like like, they oh, say ten million
0: on like day one or something yeah. like that.
1: But yeah, seven million for day one is what I was thinking But, Yeah, lifetime. Yeah, that is yeah. But also the N
0: sixty four didn't have as big of an install base as like the Switch does.
1: Well, yeah, I mean you can't compare it to the modern I mean it's it's so much less niche now too yeah. i mean it's everyone plays video games now so it landed I mean, kind at, of a weird thing back then
0: it landed at number four on lifetime n64 software sales uh mario 64 was one which is kind of cheating because it was a pack-in game uh well, it was
1: not no that's right you're no right. i don't think God. so
0: you're right because i do remember having to buy it separately but yeah but it I,
1: was like the only thing available on day one that's basically. True. <laughs> it was so it was a very scarce might as well item.
0: yeah uh, Mario Kart 64, number two, GoldenEye 007, number three.
1: Oh, that's, that's not surprising. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But,
0: I, of Time, yeah, number four. Right. Yeah. So, in 2018, which was the last time we did this excruciating exercise when we listed our 300 games of all time, top 300 games of all time, we listed it at number 39 in the greatest games of all time. While our reader vote, which I believe you headed up, Kyle, or Probably. I helped you, yeah. I helped you head up, and we then you together were on that, I think uh landed at number three which i am much more in line with with the readers yeah on that.
1: <laughs> certainly i mean I'm, I'm sure in those meetings we were we were pushing for it to be much higher than that but you know that's just how it lands sometimes when you're is, when yeah. you're working with a big group
0: so in uh our zelda ranking list which i referenced earlier with a link between worlds being at number five ocarina of time is number two behind only a link to the past
1: which mm, is yeah, respectable i would, I respect I would pump it. it i would push it up to one myself
0: you know i that. know you would because it's your number one game overall <laughs> <laughs> so uh in 2011 13 years later we got a 3ds remake ocarina of time 3d how fast did you pick this up when it came out
1: the, the day it launched i was of there. course i think i was still working at no i guess i wasn't working at GameStop at the time but yeah no no that was huge for me i mean that was like yeah absolutely like that, that, yeah, I was that, that's why I bought the 3DS was to play that, <laughs> you know,
0: I do remember distinctly going to a GameStop in Pittsburgh when I was where I was living at the time. I didn't have my 3DS, but I knew Ocarina of Time 3D was coming up because, you know, you a lot of people forget 3DS now a very respectable library. Yeah, Nintendo actually had to apologize for how bad the, the early months of software were for that system. To the <laughs> yeah, point they yeah. had like, oh, we're gonna put out the Nintendo 3DS Ambassador program that gave you a bunch a of member. free. I'm
1: a life- lifetime member to him am too to.
0: because I bought it right before they announced. Like I, I bought it alongside Ocarina of Time 3D when that came out. I went to a GameStop in Pittsburgh. And I remember that was also when I uh, re-upped my Game Informer subscription <laughs> because I was I'm like, "Yeah, up, you're right. I should get a, a, a membership and get a Game Informer subscription because I would actually like get like coupons or whatever." But
1: yeah, I'm looking uh, at a timeline because I bought a 3DS at launch, um, and I played I played Pilot Wings uh, as much as I could, and, I but not. yeah, it was like two or three months before Ocarina of Time 3D. I mean, that was why I bought the 3DS, like same, just knowing it was coming. I was like, "Well, I'll go get one at launch because I want." One, but uh, yeah, for sure.
0: So we, ha- I, I do want to go a little bit over the 3D remake here. I'm not as nearly as in depth as we do with Ocarina of Time on N64, but the development was handled by Grezzo, who went on to do mm-hmm. Majora's Mask 3D and also worked on the Link's Awakening Switch remake. And yep. according to Koichi Ishii from Grezzo, on in a, the final part of this Iwata asks that we've been referencing, he had no idea what was going on before development started, and he got a note from Satoru Iwata that he wanted to meet with him. And asked him, hey, can you come to Kyoto? (laughs) And he was like, yeah, I had no idea why I was jumping on this train to Kyoto, but I did. And Iwata, like, during the meeting was like, hey, I'm sorry, my secretive nature. I hope I didn't make you nervous. And Ishii was like, I kind of had a hunch that it was like, because you wanted to talk about new hardware, which Iwata was like, your hunch was accurate. So during the meeting, Iwata showed him the 3DS prototype and pitched him on a remake of Ocarina of Time for it. And Ishii was like excited. Because he's like, oh, yeah, Ocarina of Time, everybody loves that. And then he quickly went from excitement to anxiety because he was like, oh, wait, everybody loves Ocarina of Time. We can't mess this up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and- that
1: would be a big project to take on for sure. That'd be tough.
0: So it's a super faithful remake, but he they did make some changes to modernize the game and make it work with the 3DS hardware. So obviously when they moved it to like the, the non glasses 3d, like uh, we, we've talked about Ocarina of time as being a 3d game. Cause it was a 3d plane, but this is actually like 3d like visuals. Like that was the, the key gimmick of yeah. the, the 3ds you could look at it and see 3d visuals without like 3d glasses. So when they did that, they actually noticed a lot of graphical problems that they had to address. And they also said that the increased frame rate frame rate of the 3ds was a challenge for them. Cause it broke a lot of like the animations and everything. And the new frame rate made Ganon's battle actually feel weird because in mm. parts he felt really sluggish, but they didn't want to move him because they were like, it'd be really weird if like this giant beast Ganon battle, if he was like too fast or too swift. So they had to adjust it. So it felt like players remember, even though it was behaving extremely different, like in the back end.
1: Huh, interesting.
0: And then outside of the graphics, they said the biggest change was fixing the water temple and, uh, Al <clears throat> He said, "Quote: As I alluded to when I introduced myself earlier, I wanted to do something about the Water Temple. Everyone talks about it, so it's been a long-standing wish of mine these last 13 years." Yeah, and well, that's was... his
1: his dun- his dungeon, right? So, and
0: I remember in the, in the rapid-fire interview that Ben Reeves did with Shigeru Miyamoto and uh Eiji Aonuma Numa back for, for as part of the Zelda cover story that we did mm-hmm. for that you wrote, but he did the video thing of. He asked, like, hey, is the water temple going to be bad in this one? And Miyamoto like, was like, no, Aunuma's not developing it. Or Aonuma didn't design the water temple this time around or something like that. And Aonuma looked like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But, that's uh, a good one, yeah. So Aonuma said this was one of his biggest points when he went into the project. He wanted to fix the water temple. And Iwata kind of described it like a bone stuck in Aonuma's throat for 13 years. Like it's just kind of like this thing that he's, that he's wanted to do for all this time. This was finally his ch- his chance to do it. And Aonuma's biggest complaint that he said he heard was the tedious menu process of taking on and off the Iron Boots. So they fixed that by including it as an item instead of equipment that you, and allowed you to do it via the touchscreen of the 3DS. So there wasn't any need to go into the menu. And yes,
1: they also yes.
0: added some directionals on the wall so you could remember where you needed to go. And it's, it's still not 100% fixed. It's still the worst dungeon in the game, but it's so much better
1: in the 3DS version. Yeah, I remember my reaction at the time was like, oh, they didn't change it that much, right? It's like, I thought they would like overhaul it, but they really didn't. They just sort of tweaked it to make it a little easier to read, you know?
0: Yeah, and it absolutely is better. Um, but I, I wish that they put this version on the Switch Online or like just put it yeah. on, just sell it for 20 bucks, like up-res it, Make Sell it for so the, fifty. I don't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so this this thing with like if uh, you you were on the Wind Waker retrospective that we did on this very up ep- this very show, um, mm-hmm. where Al Numa was talking in the Wind Waker retrospective, uh, and he was like, I was afraid to go play it because I'd be like critical of all of the things that I did back then. It's like we we start thinking like, oh, I want to tweak this. I want to tweak this, and. Oh, yeah koizumi and osawa said that they felt this with playing the 3ds version they said they were afraid to play the 3ds version of ocarina of time because they knew that they would go back and experience their work 13 years later and want be like oh we should change all this stuff we should make this all better like we because they have 13 years of experience now that's like they they know what they're doing They obviously 13 years of making a 3d game past what they had when this game came out so it's like they know like the best practices there are best practices now um So yeah, Ocarina of Time 3D came out June 19th, 2011. We scored it a 9.25 out of 10. Uh, Dan Reichert was our reviewer. Uh, Hmm. I don't know what he's up to now, but he's he's probably still out there somewhere. (laughs) Um, It has a 94 on Metacritic, so still a very well-loved game. Ended up being the 13th best-selling 3DS game of all time, which I thought was a little low, but I I guess there were a lot of very well-liked and high-selling 3DS games. Did so, it beat Majora?
1: I don't know if you have the list handy. I
0: don't have the list handy. Okay. I'm, yeah. I'm assuming it did.
1: Um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. I wonder because, like, I, the, the install base for 3S was much bigger by the time it came out. I, it's just a weird footnote in Ocarina's sort of legacy because people be like, "Like, ah, oh, I want a remake of Ocarina," and it's kind of like, "Well, they did one," and my, the reaction is usually like, oh, i not. I didn't play that one. Or I do not I oh, or oh yeah, that one. You know, like it didn't really make this huge impact." it so is i don't weird. know why though. I, I love that remake and i would love it
0: on switch like even if they just brought yeah. it forward modern visuals like like not even modern visuals like just up no. res the visuals that we had or like i i mean I, i'm saying it like it's easy like obviously any You're development right. task is like it, it's always easier said than done but i feel like a lot of the groundwork is there and like i, I would love to see some form of that version on switch because there are yeah. a lot of uh, I, I don't want to dust off my 3DS. I don't even know where my 3DS is at this point.
1: Throw Throw Majora and Ocarina on a in a package. You know the 3DS versions uh, on Switch. I'd love that.
0: Yeah, uh, but, but along those lines, there's been a remake that we for years now, or a rumor that for years now that we've been will be getting a remake on modern consoles. Well, what would that even look like if they wanted to do something beyond what we got with the 3DS version?
1: Just you know, modern. It would have like look closer to the Breath of the Wild, Tears of the Kingdom art. Probably, you know, like, I don't, yeah, I don't know what I would want from that really, honestly. I mean, for me, it's like the
0: lowest effort is just like exactly what we got with the 3DS version. Just make it so it works on Switch with like HD visuals and like obviously only one screen. The the pie in the sky, wildest definition of it is take Hyrule Field and like all of its little like branching areas you can go off to and transition that into what we have now with the format of breath of the wild, where it's like Hyrule field is just now this sprawling huge thing, but the story follows Ocarina of time, but it's much more exploration focused and much more open. Like that's my pie in the sky. Like if they're going to remake it, like just go hard with that.
1: I I don't know. I would want it to be more, uh, servile to the original. I think I, cause like that, cause that, Hyrule kind of exists in Breath of the Wild, you yeah. know, I mean, I mean, a lot ranch Tears of ranch the is there, you know, like it's you that I don't know, I guess I would rather have it more play on my nostalgia than sort of adapt it to their new style. I'd rather just have a new, you know, Tears of the Kingdom Breath of the Wild sequel or, you know, a whole new game Uh rather than try to sort of take the ocarina square and put it in a round hole, you know, Um But yeah, I don't know, I I guess I but I'm also just such a I just have so much nostalgia for the original that I I'd be happy to have a better looking version of that game on modern consoles. And and I don't need much else. Maybe I'm maybe I'm too simple. I don't know. And
0: a lot of people, (laughs) I mean, obviously, there's a lot of uh, stuff that's different, but a lot of people kind of look at Tears of the Kingdom as a very, very, very loose retelling of the events of Ocarina of Time. Yeah, I can see that. Um, especially the the flashback stuff that you get in Tears of the Kingdom, but uh, Kyle, final question here: Is it even possible to like accurately capture the legacy or an importance of this game in a podcast, an article, or really any <laughs> medium at all?
1: Uh, no, I mean not really. I mean we're we're talking about at least for me like my favorite childhood thing, you know, like point but you know for some people it's star wars for me it's specifically the legend of zelda ocarina of time you know so it's always going to be tough to sort of uh relitigate that i suppose you can yeah. say but um yeah i i love that game and um it the t- talking about it does make me want to go find a version to play through the master quest finally i don't know the best way to do that uh but uh yeah
0: i mean i swear i think there's something to that on the switch online i'll Maybe. do a check yeah but yeah, uh so he, look, look, we'll we'll close on this according to Satoru Iwata I want you to tell me if you agree with this he felt that Ocarina of Time established the essence of Zelda
1: like True the contemporary false? current version of Zelda yeah I, I could see that yeah I mean that's that's when you think Zelda I mean that's kind of like visual identity and tone I think that's I think Ocarina of Time set the table for that I think that's fair yeah
0: all right. I would agree with him as well. I think that like, you know, Zelda, Zelda 2, Link's Awakening, Link to the Past, all incredibly important games. But I feel like Ocarina of Time just really established like so many core key elements of the franchise. And I, I agree with Iw- Iwata on that one. I think it's uh, it was fantastic. And uh, yeah, if you want to play Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, if you haven't, you absolutely should. Uh, but if it, just even if this listening to this podcast made you want to, you can do so on the Nintendo switch online plus expansion pack though. I would recommend not doing that unless you can secure one of those N64 controllers for switch online, which they it have been more readily tough. available. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. very difficult to play that game, especially with the Z targeting and everything on like a modern controller though. You can remap stuff and everything, but it's, it's just yeah, less it's of a ideal. pain Yeah, to use the switch controller. Uh, the best version I feel though, is that 3ds version that we talked about. Yes. Um, Programming note before we really close out here. Uh, I am going to be traveling as you are probably listening to this episode. Going to be out for the next two weeks. So I will be pre-recording the next two episodes Uh, as usual. If anything big happens, I'll cover it when I get back. But just uh, through December 8th, I believe. Don't expect timely news on your uh, All Things Nintendo feed. But I have two very fun conversations planned for those episodes so you'll still get your episodes uh they just won't be the the, they'll be evergreen content as it was right Uh, but kyle thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy thanksgiving week to talk about ocarina of time with me yeah no always happy to talk ocarina of time you kidding me of course and thank you so much to everyone for listening. Do me a favor if you haven't already, throw All Things Nintendo a five star review and hit that subscribe button. If you want to get any questions or comments in, you can in touch me at allthingsnintendo at gameinformer.com or hit me up on social media at Brian Pichet. I will be doing another inbox QA episode very, very soon, especially as the holidays approach. So be sure to get any questions in for that. You can also join the Game Informer Community Discord, which is a perk for subscribing to our Twitch channel. Kyle, tell everyone your presence on the internet.
1: Uh, You know, Kyle M. Hilliard, Blue Sky, Twitter. I'm on TikTok, too. Those those are the places I post the most, those three, I would say. I thought you were Kyle Hilliard on uh, Blue Sky. On Blue Sky. I mean, you're going to find me. I'm not that hard to find.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is our show for this week. Thank you all again so much for listening. Take care. We'll see you next time.